in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, Genesis chapter 17. And as you turn there, just, just a, a note, uh, some of the songs that we sing here are, are really prayers. Uh, so the song, Speak, O Lord, that we just sang is a prayer that would be a great prayer uh, to, to ask your own heart while you're singing, but even while you're waiting uh, to hear God's Word. That opening stanza, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Let the light of Christ be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes of your glory. Uh, when I pray uh, for you, uh, when I pray, when I preach, I always pray that God would speak. That's what we want. We want God's word to speak. Not a word from a man, but God. It's a great prayer to pray as we're ready to hear God's word. At this time, please stand as we hear from God's word, preparing our hearts to receive this holy food. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1 to verse 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, for your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to, be to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, to your offspring, and after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we have come to you in praise. We have come to you in confession. And now, God, we come to you bringing our request before you. Uh, Father, we, we first uh, start with those in our church who are sick. Uh, we pray, God, that you would just surround your grace um, with Ken Tatter. We thank you so much for the example that he is, God, uh, continuing to, to fight that cancer, to be with us, God. We pray that we would cherish each day we have as he is cherishing each of his. We thank you so much for his strength, and we pray, God, that you would give him more. We pray for Jerry Green, God. We pray that you would just surround him with your, with your comfort and with your care. Uh, Father, we, we pray for um, all of our uh, folks who are just struggling with sickness, the myriad um, di differences, myriad sicknesses that our, our people are struggling with. Uh, Father, we pray specifically for those who are just struggling with depression. God, we pray that you would give them the hope of the gospel of Christ. Father, you tell us to pray for those who are in authority, so we do so now. God, we pray for um, governors, God. Uh, we pray specifically for the governor of South Carolina and North Carolina, uh, those states that we are in frequently. God, we pray that you just give them wisdom. God, it, it is a dangerous place to be a leader in our country. So, God, we pray that as they um, govern our land, that you would give them immense wisdom and courage, courage to do what is right in a way that honors you. Uh, Father, we, we pray for... Um, Leaders of businesses, God, who have employees under their care, we pray, God, that you would allow them to have workplaces that honor you, 
uh, workplaces that don't are not divisive, God, words that workplaces that do not uh, discriminate, God, but that are free for people to express their their love of you, God. So, dear God, we pray that you would just have a blessing upon our people as they go in and out each week uh, into their jobs. We, make, we pray that you'd make them bold witnesses for your kingdom. Uh, Father, we do pray uh, for other churches in our area. Uh, I pray for my friend Jack Blankenship as he's preaching at Remedy Church this morning. God, we pray that you would just anoint his words. Uh, build that church up into your likeness, we pray. And, God, now we, prepare, we ask that you prepare our own hearts, Lord. As the word of God goes forth, we pray that we would be receptive, Lord that our hearts would be soft and we'd be ready to obey. Uh, dear God, we pray that you'd give us understanding, that you'd give us wisdom as we think about this, this great covenant and the covenant sign of circumcision that you gave your, your people. So, Father, I pray that as I open your word, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in thy sight. You are our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. God, I thank you so much for the people of Park Baptist Church. I thank you for their, their diligence in and faithfulness in studying your word. I thank you so much for those who have even gathered here this morning to hear your word. God, you have charged me in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus by his appearing and his coming, the one who's going to judge the living and the dead, to preach your word. As I preach, God, and your people here, we pray that you would build up your church until you come back. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every organization that does not recruit new members will become extinct. Every year, thousands upon thousands of young teens are recruited to join gangs. Teens who have often come from dysfunctional families and have offered little support from their home life are lured into the prospect of belonging to the family of the gang. Their promised loyalty, support, a true sense of belonging. Many of the initiation rites of gang members are designed really to show the seriousness of their commitment and the courage of their conviction to be part of this new family. There are a variety of initiation rites, everything from being in a circle surrounded by the, the gang members, uh, participating in a theft or a robbery, or in extreme cases, even committing murder. Whatever the initiation right, it is designed to show the cost that one is willing to pay to become a member, to show their true commitment. Gangs have a high cost of membership. Their membership is costly because the promised reward is great. They get to belong to something beyond themselves. They get to belong to a, to a community that will protect them and care for them. Many of these gang members have never experienced true loyalty and love of family, so they're desperate to belong, to be in a, in a community that always will have their back. Sadly, gang loyalty is simply a mirage. One of my good friends was in a gang most of his young life, um, in the streets of D.C., the promise that uh, people would always be there for him. Uh, one day he was arrested and he was facing a judge with the potential of facing 40 years in prison. Uh, he, he turned around and looked to see all his family that was supposed to be there to support him, except when he turned, there was no one there. 
he was alone. The loyalty and belonging of a gang is a, is a mirage. Gangs make promises that they cannot deliver. And yet their promise of belonging and connection are really woven in the very makeup of us as individuals. We want to belong to something beyond ourselves. We want loyalty. We want commitment. We want people to stand with us regardless of what comes our way. We want our membership in our communities to mean something. Gang members want to experience family. And beloved, we are no different. We all want to experience that, that family, whether it's in our, in our own family, that, that closeness, that harmony, that peace, or in a, in a larger family like we are as a body. I think it's easy to see the powerful temptation and allure that these, these young teens are, 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 are facing when they're proposed to join a gang. I think that's why thousands upon thousands of teens every year walk through these painful initiation rites to join. And without even knowing it, these gangs are, are, are dimly reflecting the story that is far greater than their loyalty of fallen man. See, God promises loyalty. God promises a belonging to His people. The difference is that God's commitment to keeping His promises, His covenant, is not like that of this world, not like that of a, a gang who falls at first sign of real trouble. But the promise that God gives, if you heard it, is an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise. Genesis 17 sets up the requirements, the, the initiation rites of God's family, of God's covenant community. Genesis 17 pictures one of the greatest days of all redemptive history. God makes His covenant with Abram, which marks off the boundaries of the covenant community of God with a sign. If you want to follow along on the bullets that provided for me, there's three things I want to point out about the covenant this morning. The first, as you see in our passage, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, the covenant is stated. The covenant is stated. Abram had already received promises from God. We looked at this last week, this great promise that God gave to Abraham that I will make you a great nation, and in you I will bless all the families of the earth. Well, we didn't look at Genesis 15, 1 through 6. God promises to bless him to become a great nation by giving him a, a son. So he tells Abram, go outside, look in the night sky, and count the stars if you are able to. And he says, so will your offspring be. And it says that Abram believed God, and it was counted, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram did not earn righteousness. It was given to him. Abram, until this point, has not been given any requirements of how he is called to, to fulfill his end of the deal until Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you 
and may multiply you greatly. So the Lord appears to Abram. He is now 99 years old. It's 24 years after he got that first initial call when he left his kindred, left his father in Haran. And God introduces himself as God Almighty, which is in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. Every time you see that, that name of God in the Old Testament, it's God's way of saying that I am powerful and able to do what I promise, especially make the barren fertile, which is the great problem of Abram's life with Sarah. She is barren. So 13 years had passed until Abram tried to fulfill the promise on his own. You remember that, that Sarai, his wife, told him to, to go into Hagar, and she, he had a son, had Ishmael. So for 13 years, Abram is watching Ishmael grow. And Abram is still hoping that Ishmael is going to be the promised son. And God comes on the sea and says, I am God Almighty, and I will do what I promised. God reminds Abram with his very name that he and he alone has the power to fulfill his promises. And I just wonder how many times you and I have tried to take God's place to do what only he can accomplish. What we see here is, is God tells Abram that he must walk before him and to be blameless. Now remember, this is an auditory culture. So we have the great luxury of being literate and having Bibles. And, you know, we probably have more Bibles than we know what to do with. Probably Bibles that sit too long on our shelves. But in this culture, they did not have lots of, 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 of printed Bibles. Everything was auditory. So when they would have heard the word walk and blameless, they would have been transported back to Genesis chapter 6, speaking of, of Noah. Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, says that Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Literally, what God is trying to do, he's trying to set up this new covenant with Abram as he made with, with Noah. So he literally wants Abram to walk before God, wholly devoted to him. Abram must totally surrender to the Lord. God Almighty, the eternal King. So as God made a covenant with Noah, he's putting his, his bow in the clouds, and now God is ready to make a covenant with Abram. The word, uh, the, the, the phrase, my covenant, appears nine times in this next section. So we just have to understand that this covenant that, that God is making is, Abra, is God's covenant to Abraham. Look what the text says, Genesis 17:3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. Now remember that the, the original promise is you will be a great nation. Now it's you'll be a multitude of nations. Now look what the next line says. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You see how the tense changes there? It's no longer present tense. It's now past tense. I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. When God says he's going to do something, it is good as done. Nothing can stop the word and the purposes of the Lord. And that's what he's trying to say by even giving his name, I am God 
Almighty. We go on. It says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Those last five words are the great promise of the Old Testament. I will be their God. That's what God has promised to us. And God will fulfill that promise. We see that all the way from the beginning of Genesis 17, at the end of the book, Revelation 21, when the new heavens and the new earth are brought down to heaven, there's a, a voice from the throne that says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, the second thing we see in this great covenant, a lot of the, this is the covenant that was re- repeated in many ways from Genesis chapter 12. So if you weren't here last week, you can go online and you can read about those great promises. They're reiterated here. Well, the thing that is different now is that there's a sign. There's a covenant sign. We know that God is going to fulfill His Word. God always keeps His promise. But how will Abraham and how will his descendants show that they believe? Words are not enough. God gives them a very specific requirement in a covenant sign. So that it will be clearly identified as his people. God already said what he was going to do, but now Abraham is receiving his marching orders. Look with me in Genesis 17, verse 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, this is now putting it on Abraham, this is what you must do. Uh, before I read this, I have a friend that, uh, who's a pastor in town, and he loves the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, always wants to speak about the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say amen and amen to that. But you know what he doesn't like to do? He doesn't like to tell people commands. He doesn't like to tell people what they're called to do. Well, I think God, we know that we can only fulfill our lives in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Galatians 3 is talking about. We've been saved by the Spirit, so we must walk by the Spirit. But God is still commanding you and I to do things. Okay? There are, there are requirements to be a Christian. And this is what Paul, or this is what, this is what um, uh, Abram, uh, God is telling Abram here. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised man who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from, the, from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the sign given to Abraham is different than the sign given to Noah. You know, circumcision 
unlike the rainbow, has to be performed by human beings to show that they're in partnership with the covenant. God puts the rainbow in the sky, and there's nothing we can do about it except say, wow, that's a pretty rainbow. But with circumcision, that we actually have to, to come along with God to participate in the covenant. Circumcision was the sign for the people to be marked off to be a covenant community. Remember, at this time, they don't have a physical land. So how do you know who is, is part of the nation of Israel? It's those who participate in the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision. That was to show that they were totally committed to God. Now, circumcision was a permanent sign. In the flesh, as a permanent reminder of the permanency of the, the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's an everlasting covenant. You see that? So the circumcision was an everlasting sign. It could not be undone. Circumcision was a painful, bloody initiation rite into the people of God. This was not easy obedience. And yet, circumcision was appropriate because it was a physical reminder that God promised a physical offspring to Abraham. That which provided the seed would carry the mark of God's people. It would be a constant reminder of the promised seed that was to come. God establishes the seriousness of keeping his covenant. That as for you, the seriousness of you who are called to, to, to be my people by, by a word play here in Genesis 17, 14. It says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. One scholar notes the, the warning that he shall be cut off from his people involves a, a word play on cut. He that is not himself cut, circumcised, will be cut off, ostracized. There is a choice, be cut or be cut off. The one who will not submit to this painful initiation, right of a covenant membership, has disobeyed the covenant stipulation and thereby broken God's covenant. Therefore, he has forfeited his privilege of being part of God's covenant community. And God requires his excommunication from the community. So, God takes covenants very seriously. Circumcision played a huge role throughout the, the history of God's people to show who is for Christ or who is for the, the promised one, the Christ who was to come and who was not. Now remember how it is the Israelites in the wilderness had received this command. Because remember, this, the, the, the original audience was the Israelites who were about to enter the promised land. How would they have received this? The Israelites were being encouraged to continue in the covenant faithfulness to God as they entered into the land of the Canaanites. Now when they entered into these, to the land of the Canaanites, they were called to be marked off, to be different, to be, to be set apart. It was very clear that that these um, Israelites were called to, to, to live their life in such a way to honor God. Well, why, is he, why is he saying this? Wouldn't it, wouldn't, I mean, God was very clear in his command that all people who are offspring of Abraham should be circumcised. So all the Israelites who are about to enter the promised land, of course, should already be circumcised. Well, according to Joshua 5, 5 through 7, this is what it says. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, people who had came out of Egypt, 
Yet all, on the, and were, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So you see, you had a whole generation of of children, a whole generation of people that were not keeping God's covenant because of the waywardness of the parents. Now as they were becoming adults, there's this charge again to fulfill God's covenant. Now understand that the original hearers, when they were hearing this, they were not circumcised. I think it underscores of the importance of this covenant sign. And the question is, will Israel continue to walk with God? Well, by God's grace, circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant of the new people. Right? God's covenant people now has been transferred from circumcision to, to baptism. Outward circumcision is no longer the sign. God is after, no longer after an outward circumcision, but he's after an inward circumcision of the heart. Circumcision has been replaced with baptism. So hear what, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. This is a longer passage. I want you to see this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians, or Colossians chapter 2. Colossians Chapter 2. It says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. So being buried with Christ in baptism is a sign that you have experienced the circumcision of the Spirit. Not by human hands, but by the Spirit of God. Paul makes this point in Romans 2. Circumcision is no longer outward and physical. It is, it is a matter of the heart. And all Paul is doing is, is working off what God has already spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Well, now we know that those who are, are of the new covenant have the experience the, the circumcision of the, a new heart. Because God promises that in Jeremiah 31. So we as God's people now demonstrate that we are children of God, not by circumcision, but by baptism and the Lord's Supper, which ensure that we live in righteousness in God's covenant community. So as circumcision marks the boundaries in the Old Testament, baptism helps mark the boundaries of God's people today. As circumcision clearly was important for the people of God in the Old Testament, baptism clearly marks the people of God in the New. We all, as the Bible just said, were once time dead in our trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of our flesh. 
It says God fulfilled his everlasting covenant when he sent Jesus Christ to the cross. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And here's what he's trying to say, this idea of debt. Every time you break the law, the the law of God, every time that you disobey God, what happens is, is you incur debt upon yourself. You owe something to God because of your sin. And what the Bible is saying is that Jesus Christ canceled it all. All the debt that you owe because of your sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we experience that, when we, when we understand what Jesus Christ did and his, his death and his, his resurrection, what happens is that our hearts become alive. The Bible, the Bible says that God takes our dead hearts and he gives us a new one. We are new creatures in Christ, born again. Now here's the challenge of our world. We don't live in a society where it really costs anything to be baptized. Now, circumcision in the Old Testament was painful. It was, a, it was costly. It considered this, this permanent change. You, you've cha- you're changing something. Now, it, it's not uncommon in America to have someone baptized two or three times. To, to kind of enter the baptismal waters very flippantly and very casually. Uh, if you go online, you can, you can see even... Um, kids doing cannonballs into the baptistry. Now, when you watch it, it may be humorous, but what happens is that you are trivializing a sign that should cost you something. Think of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, our brothers and sisters in in Asia. They know that when they go into the waters of baptism, it literally may mean that they are buried with Christ. It may sign their death warrant. It costs them everything. And yet, they go in the waters. Because they know they no longer are their own. But they belong both in life and in death, body and soul, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Baptism is always costly. Because we experience baptism because God sent His Son to die. To pay the penalty for our sin. So, beloved, we can't trivialize the, the, the membership of God's covenant community. In Abram's day, God said, if you are not circumcised, you will be cut off from God's people. So today, if you have not experienced the circumcision of the heart, if you have not been been Um, repented of your sins and trust in Christ, the Bible says that you will be cut off from the people of of God. Now we know that baptism does not save you. But it is a sign that you have been saved. I mean, have you experienced the circumcision of the flesh? Meaning, have you put your faith in Christ? Have you been buried with Christ in baptism? That's the sign. The New Testament does not see salvation and baptism as mutually exclusive. They're intimately connected. Uh, Now, the New Testament never explicitly baptizes infants. 
In our denomination, we, we believe in regenerate church membership, meaning that everyone who becomes a member of the church should be baptized. There's other denominations, uh, Methodist, Episcopal, uh, Presbyterian, that believe in infant baptism. Uh, well, let me just teach on this very briefly. Uh, infant baptism became popular in the third century uh, by the Bishop of Carthage, Cyprian. Uh, Pado Baptist, which is their name, who baptized infants, believed that as babies were circumcised on the eighth day, they should also be baptized. Now, Peter proclaims at Pentecost, those all must repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that your sins are forgiven. And then he says, quoting this verse in Genesis 17, this promise is for you and for your children. Recalling this very passage. So Paedo-Baptists make their argument for baptizing infants by analogy and by silence. They make it by analogies that as the Old Testament Jews circumcised babies, the New Testament Christians should baptize babies. That's kind of an analogy they're making. But they also use it by silence. And by silence, what I mean is that there are different passages in the book of Acts that assume that there are children, babies in the house. So throughout the, the book of Acts, you see that so-and-so believed Christ and they were baptized, him and his whole household. They're assuming that in that household also had babies, also had infants. So the Jew, they're saying the Jewish believers would have connected baptism with circumcision, so they would have naturally baptized babies. And I think by, by doing that, they missed the, Peter's whole point at, at Pentecost. What does Peter's sermon say? Repent, repent, repent and be baptized. You need to have a circumcision of the flesh. And children can't have the, the circumcision of the, of the flesh unless they are born again. They, they can't have all their sins nailed to the cross by Christ unless they believe. They have to, be, to experience the, the new birth. So infants... Since they cannot experience repentance, they should not be baptized. But I also don't want us as Baptists to vilify anyone who believes in that. Because Presbyterians, godly men who love the Scriptures, make that case. We just view it differently as, as Baptists. And yet either way, we can't lose the distinctiveness of the covenant community. We are God's people. We, like Abraham, are called to walk before God and be blameless. Baptism cuts us off from the world. When we stand before a, a crowd of people and go into the waters to be buried with Christ and to be raised with Him, we're telling the, the world that we belong to God. We no longer are part of this world. Our destiny is, is heaven. Baptism is the entrance rite of the New Testament church, as the Lord's Supper is the continual rite that marks off us from the world. So we need to celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. We need to, to, to view it in a, a, a wise and powerful way. Because God takes the signs of the covenant seriously. As he did in the Old Testament, as he does in the New. God took circumcision so seriously that he almost struck Moses dead for not circumcising his child. We should take baptism in the New Testament just as serious. It is not an add-on to the Christian faith, but a central expression of the New Testament covenant community. 
And we see here, as we close, Abram, Abraham took the command of the Lord very seriously. Look at verse 22. Sorry, verse yeah, 22 through 27. We'll wrap up here. Genesis 17:22 says, When we had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to them. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This idea of circumcision is going to play a key role in the New Testament. And and notice that even here, at the beginning of God's people, the beginning of God's covenant community, on that very day, God's people are are formed. When, When that happens, who's there? You have Abraham. You have Ishmael. You have those who are house slaves or servants. And you have those foreigners who are part of the community. We're going to refocus on this next week, this idea of God's Son, the promised Son of the covenant in, in this passage, this idea of the birth of Isaac. How is God going to fulfill all these great and glorious plans? Let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Uh, We thank you so much for how you uh, work in signs uh, to mark off your people. God, I pray that we would um, understand the importance of being marked off as the community of your people. We thank you for the, the picture of circumcision. And God, we thank you now for the picture of baptism, how we get to publicly stand Uh, and give our life to you. God, we pray for us here, we pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, that although baptism may cost us everything, we gladly would go in the waters to testify in your greatness. We love you so much, Lord, and we ask you to give us wisdom on these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.